0: Live from CAP Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Mike Haggerty, and for Vicky Gonzalez, just about three years ago, we started hearing about a mysterious virus that was starting to spread around parts of China. Soon after, COVID-19 made its way to the United States and then quickly around the world. Local, state, and federal agencies responded or scrambled to respond the best they knew how. We all remember how we needed to stay home, stay six feet apart, wear a mask, and thoroughly wash our hands. And that was just supposed to last a few weeks to stop the spread. Well, since then, the response to the COVID-19 pandemic has been fought over, debated and dissected and will be for decades to come. Emergency laws and mandates were put into effect. There were new rules and regulations, color codes and tiers that touched every aspect of life as we knew it. But one of the most controversial measures taken here in California and in other parts of the country was the mandate that children be vaccinated in order to attend school. On February 28th, California will officially end its COVID-19 pandemic emergency declaration, and that means public school children in California will no longer need COVID vaccines. We have two guests with us today to discuss the end of the mandate and what it means moving forward. Dr. Monica Gandhi is Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at the University of California, San Francisco. She's been a frequent guest of ours during the pandemic. But first, we'll begin with Diana Lambert, education reporter for EdSource based here in the Sacramento area. Diana, thanks for joining us this morning.
1: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on.
0: So the state's COVID emergency officially ends February 28th. What are some of the mandates that will expire aside from the vaccine mandate for schoolchildren?
1: I think there's like 27 more mandates, but these are not education related, so I'm not actually that aware of what they all are.
0: Okay, so take us back to how the covid vaccine mandate came about for schoolchildren and the support for and opposition against it.
1: Well, in 2021, Governor Gavin Newsom announced the vaccine mandate would uh, be mandatory. Uh, the vaccine would be mandatory in schools for children. And it, in April of last year, they pulled it back because the Department of Public Health wanted to ensure that the vaccines were fully mandated by the FDA.
0: State Senator Dr. Richard Pan also fought to remove the personal belief exemption for the vaccine. Refresh our memory about that, would you?
1: Right. He did want to have a take away, uh, have a personal exemption mandate that would require families. uh, They wouldn't be allowed to to not have their kids vaccinated just because they have a personal uh, belief not to do it. So uh, but he pulled that back, too. And he said that was because it would be just too complicated for school districts to do this. I mean, Unlike other vaccinations, you need multiple COVID vaccinations to be fully vaccinated. And it would be hard for districts to, to monitor that and to ensure that the students are fully vaccinated. Generally, you, get, you have to have your vaccine uh, records checked at first and seventh grade and when you enroll in school. But they would have to be checked constantly. So it was just too complicated to be done.
0: So as of now, how many of California's 6.7 million school children have been vaccinated?
1: So a third of children ages 5 to 11, and 67% of the 12 to 17-year-olds have been vaccinated. But that actually means there are quite a few that have not.
0: And it appears the Department of Public Health's ending this mandate quietly without a lot of fanfare. When asked, did CDPH give a specific reason why the mandate is ending?
1: They did, they say they're ending the mandate for the same reason the state of emergency is ending because they have a large number of Californians who have been vaccinated and because we have new antiviral treatments that make it COVID less deadly.
0: They seem to be doing it kind of quietly though. Did you get yeah. a sense in your conversation, in your reporting, whether this is a decision on the part of CDPH or if it's coming from higher up from the Newsom administration down to the department level to do it quietly? No
1: one is saying. They're not they're not saying generally the conversations have been email mm-hmm. and everyone is getting the same exact message from them. So no one is elaborating. I contact the governor's office and they simply said that isn't necessarily connected to the state of emergency. CDPH is just doing it for the same reason that the governor's ended the state of emergency. But whether or not he's telling them to end it. Hard to
0: know. You know, Diana, I remember the deadline having to be pushed back or adjusted a few times for the school kids mm-hmm. being vaccinated. Did the schools, in fact, have a difficult time enforcing this mandate in the first place?
1: Well, they never had to enforce it because it never actually came to pass. But they were very concerned about having to enforce it for the reasons I mentioned before. They didn't know how they were going to navigate this with how many different vaccines each kid would have to have, and also because of such low number of kids, especially smaller children, actually being vaccinated. Then, of course, we have parents who have been, some parents who have been opposed to this and been very adamant about that and would have been very difficult for some districts to manage it. And I have a good example. I I talked to a a Lucerne Valley Unified School District superintendent Mm -hmm. who said he felt that 95% of his families wouldn't vaccinate their students and so he wouldn't have been able to enforce it at all or he would have to close the school.
0: Ultimately and are you I guess the question really is what are you hearing from the people who opposed it? Uh, Are they seeing this decision by public health to now end the vaccine mandate as vindication of their position?
1: No not actually I'm getting a lot of emails from parents who just don't believe it's true who are really concerned that this is something that's just temporary that this vaccine mandate will come back or they're not even certain that it's going away. So they really just don't believe it. Um, And it's true that, you know, it could return if the legislators decide to pass a bill saying that the vaccine is mandated. That could happen. It could happen if the rates go back up again. But right now, there are no bills in play uh, to enforce this vaccination. If,
0: If, Lord forbid, COVID returns with a vengeance, How are California schools positioning themselves to respond absent this mandate? Are they, in fact, ready?
2: I, You
1: know, probably I don't think so. We don't have a mask mandate. We don't have a vaccine mandate anymore. So I think they're just to rely on the state to to maybe bring in more controls, more restrictions to keep schools safe
0: many parents decided to homeschool their kids instead of getting the COVID vaccine. Do you have any statistics from your reporting information on how many kids were pulled from their schools and whether we expect them to go back now to campus now that the mandate's ending?
1: Well, I did some reporting on that and I don't have the statistics in front of me, but we did have a big bump after 2020 of people going into homeschooling. Um, But then it sort of subsided again the next year. So, you know, it, We'll we'll have to see. There's no mandate. It probably won't go up again.
0: We've heard so much about learning loss as it relates to the pandemic. How far behind are students now? Who's most impacted by that learning loss, and how do educators plan on getting them back up to speed?
1: Well, there's been a lot of state money uh, put into to stemming learning loss, and there's a lot of after school programs and, and different tutoring that's uh, that's taken place. So um, hopefully, in the next couple of years, we'll get the kids back up to speed. They did fall quite a bit behind uh, during the pandemic.
0: In fact, Diana, you recently published an article on how difficult it's been for college freshmen who endured COVID lockdowns as high schoolers. What are you hearing about how they've adjusted?
1: You know, The adjustment's been difficult socially and academically for these students. I was surprised at how anxious they were about going away to school and how many chose to go to nearby community colleges instead of universities so they could stay close to home. So the emotional anxiety is a real thing for these students. They seem to be adjusting, but academically math seems to be a real problem. Kids really fell behind in math because that's one of the subjects where you build on your learning as you go. And if you miss something, you can't get caught back up. So a lot of kids are really struggling in the, in the university with college, and the universities have responded by putting a lot of supports in, lots of tutoring, and even at coursework, extra classes they can take to get caught back up.
0: You mentioned the tendency to stay closer to home, maybe go to a community college rather than mm-hmm. a, a far-off university. Are we starting to see now some of those students start to transfer to the, the, the colleges that they originally had in mind that might be further away in the state or out of state
1: we might see that next school year but not yet not yet this year they're still staying close to home uh, but that'll be something for us to look at next school year and see if we see those transfers taking place as they gain confidence
0: diana lambert's the education reporter for edsource diana thanks for joining us Thank you. You're listening to Insight here on CAP radio. And if you're just joining us, we're talking about the end of the mandate to vaccinate California school children. Let's bring in Dr. Monica Gandhi, professor of medicine and infectious diseases at the University of California, San Francisco. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Gandhi. Uh, Thank you. So as a medical professional and an expert in infectious diseases, do you support the vaccine mandate coming to an end?
2: You know, I do in this particular case, um, because if we think about what would be the criteria for mandating a vaccine, there would probably be two. One is that it decreases transmission to others uh, massively. So that would actually help uh, teachers, grandparents, adults. You know, these vaccines are amazing, but um, with time and with the new variants, they're really there to protect us from severe disease and they don't really protect us from all infections. We've, we've all been very aware of that since the Delta variant. The second is that, is this particular group at very high risk and young children are not from COVID. Actually, it's 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 quite a phenomenon um, in the sense that measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, pertussis, um, most of our infectious diseases do affect young children disproportionately. It was a unique characteristic of COVID that children were spared severe disease. It's why the clinical trials, they had very little severe disease in, in either arm. So there are sort of all these criteria put together it's hard to mandate this vaccine, and then let's just say people voted with their feet. And at this point, five to eleven-year-olds, about less thirty percent vaccination, less in in um, in my nation, about ten percent at the most. And we need to have our children in school. Uh, California did have the longest uh, school closures of any state in the union.
0: Do you think the state's criteria for ending the mandate matches yours? Do you think there may have been other priorities involved in the state's decision besides what you just outlined for us?
2: I think the state was probably responding to kind of people voting with their feet, you know, like the parents saying, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna get my children vaccinated, lots of pressure. Um, i think we if we go back to first principles it would have been easier to explain at the beginning that mumps is a required vaccination and COVID is not and neither is for example hpv human papillomavirus. virus it's it's recommended but it's not required because it's not life-threatening for a child um, it, it causes long-term effects so these are if we would have explained better you know what are the criteria that should have mandated vaccination we probably wouldn't have been in this uh, broach of trust that we're in right now, where people—Diana uh, just spoke about um, people questioning, "Are you going to make it come back? Mm-hmm. Are you are are you sure?" Um, and and I think our, this has been a, a kind of a problem with our messaging, especially around children, schools, and the effects of COVID on children. It just has always spared them generally COVID nineteen. And our messaging should have been better in the state of california
0: COVID in california is still considered widespread but certainly not at the levels that we were experiencing a year ago during the 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 omicron phase what challenges do you see with covid in schools for parents students and teachers as this mandate ends
2: so it is unfortunately this phrase widespread unfortunately i think we have to remember that covid will never be able to be eradicated or eliminated. It has to do, let's just keep it simple and say it's in 30 species of animals. So it's never...
0: I think we may some have... Been
2: ...severe disease. Um, can you hear me?
0: Yeah, now we can. There was about a 15-second oh, break there.
2: Okay, sorry. So, So what I'm saying is cases, unfortunately are unlikely to ever go away to COVID. Just 30 species of animals have COVID. We're never gonna eradicate it. What we have to do is uncouple severe disease from cases such that it becomes like a mild respiratory pathogen that we live with. And that decoupling um, has been achieved through immunity hopefully vaccines. I mean, certainly all adults getting vaccinated and California did a great job in getting their adults vaccinated. That really does this, what we call defanging, so that we have little less severe disease. And that ongoing immunization, boosting older people, will always be a part of our COVID response. So we we can never not work on COVID, but we have to decide who's most at risk, right, of severe disease. Mm People with comorbidities, people on immunosuppressants, people are older, they're always going to be boosted. We have Paxlovid, which are antivirals for people who are at risk for severe disease if they get COVID, and we move forward with vaccines and therapeutics for the at-risk populations.
0: There's a new Pew Research survey that shows most Americans basically don't care much about COVID anymore. Economy, crime, inflation all rank much higher on the list of concerns than COVID, How concerning is that to you as a health professional?
2: Actually, I may have a different take than many other health professionals. I find it very reassuring that Americans are reassured by how incredible our biomedical tools are for COVID-19. We have a better COVID vaccine than we do, do for flu. These vaccines work incredibly well. We have a better antiviral Paxlovid for COVID then Tamiflu is for flu. We have great biomedical advances. And I, I compare it to HIV. When we got these biomedical advances for HIV, when we got treatments, people celebrated. And I think what Americans are saying is that they understand these tools work, that we have them, that they're never going away, and they're celebrating and moving on. So I see it as that way, as opposed to staying in a state of perpetual fear, very fearful in 2020. We didn't have anything. We now have incredible tools. These are These are major advances.
0: Dr. Monica Gandhi is Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at UCSF. Thank you for joining us, Doctor. Thank you. Up next, it's a crisis impacting California tribes, missing and murdered indigenous people. We will hear from a tribal leader about the push for an end to an epidemic spanning generations. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, CAP Radio. I'm Mike Haggerty. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Mike Haggerty, and for Vicki Gonzalez, California has the largest Native American population in the country. We're home to more than 100 federally recognized tribes. From northern to central and southern parts of the state, tribes have long been grappling with a crisis of missing and murdered indigenous people, also known as MMIP. An epidemic that is rooted in a complex web of neglected issues, from gaps in law enforcement and government funding to shortcomings in social services and generational trauma. For the first time ever, tribes across California gathered at the state capitol to demand that lawmakers take action in the form of legislation and funding specifically calling on lawmakers to pass two bills that tribes say will curb the crisis, as well as approve $200 million in funding to build programs and services to prevent these tragedies from taking place. Joining us to explain more is Joseph James, chairman of the Yurok tribe, the largest tribe in the state, located in the heart of the California Redwoods along the Klamath River in Del Norte and Humboldt counties. Thanks for making the time to be with us today, Chairman. Thank you. So, although Native American and Indigenous communities have been painfully grappling with this for generations, people listening today might be hearing about this for the first time. How do you want to begin talking about the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous people?
3: Thank you. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Joseph James, chairman of the Yurok Tribe. Uh, thank you for allowing me to use this platform today to talk about that. Um, you know, this this crisis has been going on for a number of years. Um, and again, as a, yesterday was a day of action for tribal leaders throughout the state of California. Uh, we heard from victims, advocates. We heard from state legislators. Um, you know, last year of October 22, uh, tribal leaders and member James Ramos there uh, and his colleagues introduced the Feather Alert uh to bring awareness, to bring call for action. Uh, we're only the second state in the United States to have a, a feather alert system, only the second.
0: I take it that that's like an amber alert it or is a silver co- alert. That is yeah. correct,
3: that is correct. And we look at this, as you mentioned, MMIP, this has been going on a number of years. Uh, we're rallying as tribes, as advocates, as victims, as family, uh, as uh, legislators. We are bringing awareness, but most importantly, action. That's what we were there for yesterday. We have two bills that have been introduced by Senator Ramos. As you mentioned in, in your opening, mm-hmm. uh, a funding request uh, for the governor and the legislator.
0: And we'll get to those specifics in just a second. Let me ask, there are 110 federally recognized tribes in California. Is MMIP an issue literally in every tribe in the state? Is this endemic? Uh, it, it impacts all of us. We all know somebody
3: uh, in our family Are we all know somebody in our tribe that has impacted us. California has the fifth largest cases of MIP in the United States. That's a fact, Uh, and again, to answer your question, all of us are impacted here in California as tribes, and it's just not indigenous people, it's all of us.
0: And, And for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the tribal situation in California, as they would like to be the tribal land is not something you can easily fit into a box some of it weaves between urban areas in the state the Yurok yours in beautiful remote territory along the Pacific just south of the Oregon border what are the main and unique challenges in solving cases of missing and murdered indigenous people
3: we're located up there in northern California along the lower Klamath River mm-hmm. we're very rural um, it's a beautiful uh, we're rich with the river, the environment, and the great redwoods. But as part of the challenges there uh, is uh, resources, funding, law enforcement. We have our own law enforcement. And again, is, uh, being able to need to act in real time. When somebody gets abducted, threatened, or missing, um, we're stretched over two counties. So those are some of the obstacles that, that I'd highlight.
0: You have a law enforcement agency that, as you say, is tribal, so on the one hand, you're not dealing with systemic racism in that particular case, but you are severely underfunded.
3: That is correct. Uh, as, as, a, as a rural uh, tribe up there in Northern California, we're going to continue to do that, that great that good fight to protect our people, our community, our tribe. In all of us up there in our community.
0: Is there a a sense when it comes to missing and murdered indigenous people of who are most at risk of being victims?
3: Uh, Indigenous women and children are are most likely. And that's a fact with with the data. Uh, Four in five native women have experienced violence uh, in their life. Um, They're vulnerable. And again, uh, this is a call for action. We are in a crisis. We have been in a crisis for years. And when we see the, the media, uh, the locals, the national news, um, you know, this, this has nothing new for us. And again, we're trying to highlight, to bring awareness, and not just the help uh, driven by tribes and legislators, but all of us in the great state of California. We have an opportunity to, to write the wrong and also lead by example as California, as tribes in California, with other states too to part. Again, there's only two feather alerts systems, and uh, that's huge if you look at it and, and let that think in. Uh, why?
0: Would you be willing to share with us right now how you personally have been touched by this issue? You know, we have
3: a number of missing men and women. Um, in our, on or near our reservation. We're located up there in Klamath, um, along the lower Klamath River. Yurok tribe, Karuk tribe, Hoopa tribe. We're all river people. We all share and participate in our culture. You know, when somebody goes missing, someone goes murdered, we all feel it as, as people. And again, so we, we've all been impacted. So it's, it's personal you know, to um, and I'm doing everything I can as a tribal leader uh, using my voice, but more importantly, pushing and calling for action within the state, within local law enforcement. We have great support with our local law enforcement. But again, resources are are tough up there. Funding is tough. And again, it's a...
0: are, are you seeing an improvement in the understanding on the part of the state governments?
3: We have a long ways to go. We have a long ways to go to answer your question there. If you, uh, and we're, we're making great strides. Um,
0: What's often missing from the conversation?
3: Uh, awareness is one. You've got to educate and bring awareness uh, to people in the room. You've got to be at the table in the room. You've got to be able to want to, to make change. Um, and so that's number one. Um, and two is to update and change its laws, protecting the health and safety of Mmip victims.
0: You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Chairman Joseph James of the Yurok tribe about the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous people and why more than a hundred tribes across the state are calling on lawmakers to pass legislation and funding to curb this epidemic. So let's get to the event at the state capitol yesterday it was the first ever MMIP Day of Action. Yeah. How did this come about?
3: Uh, the Yurok Tribe and other tribal leaders throughout California
0: um, have been working on
3: this for a little while, but I want to first go back. Okay, this is about the people that have been combating this crisis for years, for years. The victims, the families, uh, the survivors, the advocates, the boots on the ground. Those are the people that have been driving this. We, as tribal leaders and tribal governments, are coming to the floor again, the table to see how we can help and assist. It was a beautiful day yesterday. It was a heavy day at the same time uh, to bring awareness. You had probably about 400, 500 people there yesterday hosted by a press conference, a keynote speaker, Assemblymember James Ramos, who has authored AB 44. And it was also authored AB 273, which are two pending bills that have been introduced that are going to combat the M O B crisis.
0: And let's take those one at a time. AB 44 involves tribal public safety. What does this accomplish?
3: Thank you. Two things. Uh, well, there's more things. What One is that as uh, CLETS, which is also known as the California Legal Enforcement Telelocution System, this will allow our tribal courts our peace off, our law enforcement have that data. That right now we don't have access to that. Mm. As a sovereign government who manages, oversees their tribal government in their lands, um, this will put us on the same playing field as our state partners. And again, we are filling in and identifying
0: the gaps in real time. So, in some ways, you're at a disadvantage. Absolutely. To other agencies outside the tribal world in California that have a database that they all share. You're, at this moment, in the dark on that. Absolutely. I would. I did not
3: know. Ab- absolutely. And we've got great support from our local law enforcement up there in Humboldt and Norte County regarding this. Again, we want to all come together regarding resources, information. We want to be able to have access of individuals, protective orders against them. Um, our tribal courts want to put our protective orders against individuals. Not only our law enforcement, but the local county sheriffs can have that same access and, again, working together as one to protect our our MMIP. And
0: the second piece of legislation, Assembly Bill 273, it's called Protecting and Locating Foster Children Missing from Care. What's this bill do, assuming it's passed?
3: I urge our legislators to pass both of them. Uh, They're both vital and critical uh, to combat the MMIP crisis. It is a uh, protecting children missing from foster care currently the system right now you are not mandated when a children or a child goes missing from foster care. Our data and research this is a pipeline for our young children regarding MMIP. So you're saying at it, this moment it's not mandated by, by no if the, the notification, notification that they're going missing. By missing when a young child or Man or woman goes missing, a youth from the foster care system. The local county is not mandated to report this, and that's that information
0: there's... that they would share with other law enforcement agencies in California, but not with the tribal nations. Correct.
3: They they would notify the tribal nation. They would notify uh, the court system. And again, when an individual is abducted from the foster care system, we need to know they're going missing that day, that week, so we can take action in weeks,
0: months is is unacceptable. I understand that you are in fact a sovereign nation, but it seems like in all the hundreds of years that your nation and ours have existed on the same piece of land, it's incredible to me that we haven't established this basic level of cooperation much, much sooner. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. No, I I think, uh, you know, uh, we've come a long way uh, recently in the last, you know, we've made strides in other areas. And again, what we're bringing forward is the MMIP crisis. And what we have identified at our end with our advocates, victims, stories, tribal leaders, law enforcement, there's gaps. And we're bringing those gaps forward and laws need to be updated to reflect the current crisis we're dealing
0: with you also yesterday called for an historic investment of 200 million dollars to build programs and services that prevent girls women and people from becoming missing or murdered Help us visualize where that money goes if it's granted
3: uh, this money would be would be provided for the regions Southern California central California Northern California as you mentioned a little earlier does this impact all of us absolutely impacts all tribes and non-recognized tribes in the state of California. This funding will be used for for tribes to access to prevention, awareness, mental health. When we we find these individuals, they gotta come home. The trauma that they experience, uh, the wellness that they're gonna need, the support they're gonna need. Uh, When someone goes missing, an investigator, a prosecutor, these are all resources that tribes could benefit from this funding.
0: Yeah, by their very nature, what you're talking about are very traumatic situations where just because the victim comes home doesn't mean it's all over. Uh, they and their families are going to need counseling or going to need help to be able to healthily process what has happened to them. Absolutely.
3: No, absolutely. And and, and to talk about yesterday, you know, you heard a lot of stories in, um, of people surviving, impacting themselves, their children, Trauma that can be passed down, you know. We're trying to do everything we can. Uh, Tribal, state, local government, advocates and people. And again, I'll go back to it. We have an opportunity here as California to wake up. Wake up, state legislators. Wake up. The crisis is here. It's been here. Fifth largest caseload, caseloads of MIP in the United States. It's in our backyard.
0: No more. So, given that this has been going on for generations, touching Native American and indigenous lives, why do you think now is the time that the state is listening and is likely to act?
3: I, I want to acknowledge uh, our first Native indigenous elected official, Mr. Assemblyman James Ramos. He and his colleagues have done great work um, in moving forward. Uh, laws that not just protect indigenous but affect and that impact and protect the community uh, that's one I think now and again continuing on the momentum of the feather alert that we passed last year with, with Assemblyman Ramos and the legislators and the governor signing it, um, the momentum and the crisis and the need is here Speak from your heart, lead from your heart, help one another, pick each other up. The time has been here. And again, as a, I'm very proud and honored to be on this radio, but more important, I'm proud to get that message out there. We need help, and we continue to, to seek resources when we're going to continue to move forward.
0: Assemblymember Ramos clearly gives you a, a key element of representation at the Capitol, and that's invaluable. But how is your relationship with the rest of the legislature? And do you believe that if these bills are passed, you have the support and the signature of Governor Newsom?
3: I feel we have great support. I want to also uh, recognize our our, our representatives, uh, Assemblymember Jim Wood, Senator Mike McGuire, strong supporters. Uh, we've met with legislators, roughly about 26 of them, uh, I've got to go meet some more after this. Um, we've got strong support regarding these two bills. Um, uh, we've talked to the governor. We sent him a number of letters. He hears our voice. And uh, and again, as a, I feel that we have the support there. We've got some work yet to do, just like any other bill. Uh, you've got to put the time and the working and the push. And again, but uh, when you have a number of, of tribes, uh, 110 in the state of California pushing, advocates, family, organizations, domestic violence groups, men and women, legislators. We feel we have the support.
0: You're in Sacramento to make the case to the elected officials. You're on the radio for a different reason. That's to talk to the average Californian Mm -hmm. who is listening, who may not have known anything about this 15 minutes ago when we began this conversation. What? Do you want the people who are listening to us right now on CAP Radio to take away from this conversation?
3: Uh, it could happen to anybody. It could happen to anybody at any point in any time. Uh, your family, your daughter could be abducted, could gone missing. It's a terrible feeling when I have family come into my office as a tribal chairman And to listen to the heartfelt stories that they're going through. Can't imagine that. But I try to put my place there, and it's very heavy. And again, uh, this has been going on for years to Indigenous people of color. This could happen to anybody here, and we have an opportunity to make that change in California.
0: And I think it's important for us to close with reemphasizing to the people who are listening or the people who joined us midway that the tribes have their own investigative and law enforcement agencies. You have your own forces to do this. What you're lacking is basic interactivity with data that all other law enforcement agencies in the state have and funding to do the best work that you possibly can.
3: Uh, yeah, and I just wanted to, uh, uh, not all tribes have law enforcement. Mm. Law, each tribe's different okay. uh, in, in different cases. Uh, you have tribes southern, central, northern, inland, on the mountains. Each tribe is different. Okay. Gu- they have different capacity.
0: This was something I didn't understand.
3: Yeah. So uh, you have a number of us, small tribes, medium, large tribes. We're the largest populated state of California. And again, uh, we have the takeaway here, but he wants to help send a letter into their local assembly member and urge the passage of AB 44 and also AB 273 and also the support of the funding of 200 million that tribes will be able to utilize to combat this crisis in California.
0: Chairman Joseph James of the Yurok tribe talking about the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous people and why more than 100 tribes across the state are calling on lawmakers to pass legislation and historic funding to curb this epidemic. Chairman, thank you again for taking the time to come in and be with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me this morning. Still ahead, Sacramento is honoring Tyree Nichols, the 29-year-old who died after being hospitalized following a brutal beating by Memphis police. We'll hear from his friends and family and get a glimpse of who Tyree was and his impact on those who knew him. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Mike Haggerty. We're back in just a moment. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Mike Agerdy, in for Vicki Gonzalez. The city of Sacramento is honoring Tyree Nichols. The 29-year-old died after being hospitalized following a brutal beating by the Memphis police. Five officers are facing second-degree murder charges in addition to the firing of a sixth officer and three medics with the Memphis Fire Department. But before Tennessee, Tyree called Sacramento home and would regularly skate at the Regency Community Park in North Natomas. Councilmember Lisa Kaplan says the city is in the process of renaming the park the Tyree Nichols Skate Park. That announcement came over the weekend during a Celebration of Life ceremony at Sac Ramp Skate Park, sharing memories of the father and avid skateboarder. Here's Tyree's god sister, Latoya
1: Izar. Honestly, there's just not enough words to describe how me and my family feel about it, because that's where Tyree started, and we know that it means a lot to him, so it's beyond words of what it means to us.
0: Tyree's mother, Rovon Wells, was also in attendance and spoke to the crowd of hundreds who were there to honor her son.
1: On behalf of my family, I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for coming out to share my son's life and his
3: legacy, and I promise you, I will fight we are going to get justice for him. If it's the last thing
0: that I do. At that event, InSight producer Victor Corral Martinez met with two of Tyree's closest friends, Ryan Wilson and Jerome Neal, and put together this piece in their own words.
4: My name is Ryan Wilson. He was my best friend in the whole world, like my brother. You know, he was, he was everything to me. I met out over at the Regency Skate Park about late 2007, probably 2008-ish. And, you know, for a while he was kind of like keeping himself, had his headphones in, and he sort of didn't talk a whole lot. But then eventually, you know, I broke through and we just couldn't stop talking. And we became real close after that. Tyree was one of those people where, like, he... Me and him, one of the things we shared in common was like he had like abilities, but he kind of would like he would doubt himself a lot of times and just sort of like he would overthink things. But then when he'd have those spark of like just inspiration, he'd watch a really good video or he'd want to show off for someone, you know, if there was like a pro at the park or something, you know, he he had it in him to do really cool things when he put his uh, mind to it. Well, it's it's kind of a roller coaster. I mean, like you know, we've all lost family members and this and that, you know, throughout the years. But you know, just like someone that close, like you know, a lot of times when they're that young, they sort of it sort of feels like they're untouchable. You know, you, tragedies happen, but you you never think that you're going to be that that person, and like you can't really you can't really predict or like control like how your mind and body sort of like handles it. So like it's been coming in waves and everything where I'll just some random song or some random thing will sort of bring it back. A lot of songs by like The Killers, he he really liked. So he was always looking at new stuff and trying to find new stuff that, that, you know, stuff that gets you excited, you know, gives gives you energy. And yeah, whenever I hear dubstep, even though like I'm not particularly a fan of it, like, you know, we did a lot of songs or a lot lot of videos with that whole thing. And yeah, just like anything like that sort of would really get me uh, going. I mean, the thing is, is Tyree was like, you know, he was always a little bit older than a lot of us. I mean, I'm only two years like younger than him, but a lot of us like he kind of he got used to taking people under his wing and it doesn't help that he was 18 feet tall either. So, you know, he that's kind of what skateboarding is. You know, you just you help people out and like Tyree knew what it was like to be, you know, in those the little kids shoes. You know, you're you're doing something you're not familiar with. You're scared. You're maybe nervous. Um, And he, he really was like he loved helping kids. It's something he always wanted to be a part of for the rest of his life. He's like, I don't care how much money I'm making. I don't care where I'm going. Like, as long as I'm filming and taking pictures and this and that, that's really, that's good enough for me. And as you saw, like in his later years, he loved sunsets and things like that. So yeah, he was just happy to be behind the camera. I've talked with a lot of different people, a lot of his other friends, his family. I feel like we're doing actually a great job of, you know, really sharing what kind of person he was. I mean, there's only so much you can really say about a person, but just his kind hearted, you know, spirit and his like willingness to make everyone smile at all times, even when he maybe wasn't able to smile himself. I mean, this stuff's been said over and over again. And like, that's, I think that's, it's doing a great job. He was on this earth for almost three decades. And that particular incident was very short lived, you know, maybe a couple days from the time it happened to the time he moved on and it's like that's not fair to you know reflect and think about his whole life based on that one particular incident that does not reflect him as a person and who he was to me and his family and everyone else and the fact that that one particular thing can bring out the whole nation like that's like it's wild it just really shows how close we are um you know as a community and it doesn't matter if you know someone or not you know that's we're all kind of part of the same family in one way or another
5: Jerome Neal. Um, I've known Tyree for 13 years. I've been like one of his skate friends ever since. You no, know, met him at a skate park and was just friends ever since then. Just like naturally, him and I uh, have always been into cameras. And him and I made like uh, videos together and stuff. So like, we really had a like a pretty big connection. Like, him and I used to go back and forth just creatively, like like all the time. Like, we were like 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 just so connected. Each of us that skated with Tyree has all learned something from him. Like. Last the past couple of days when I go out and skate, I literally do tricks that Tyree taught me because he's taught me like like quite a bit. Like especially like on like the, uh, the half pipe or like mini ramp. Like he was so good at that. Like you can watch him one day and you'd just be in shock at the at the way he can just you know gracefully skate that thing. And like I said, he was giving it to all of us. Like, we all have a little bit of Tyree in us because he was, like you said, a mentor. He was just sharing information that he had, helping others in situations he knew he could help help us with. Like, he was just like a golden soul, bro. Like, that's the best way to put it. Just was always there, would motivate you, talk you through with things, convince you you could do something when you didn't believe in your own self. Like, that was Tyree. first heard about it and he was like, you know, in the hospital. He hadn't gone, passed away yet. i didn't think he would go I was I had full faith that Tyree was gonna pull through I was gonna see him again you know he was gonna go through a rough time but he was gonna be okay and then a couple days later that was just wrong and that that just wasn't his path and it was just been really sad it still hasn't not been sad like every morning every day I'm just like stuck constantly thinking about him and just like how crazy this this situation is and how none of it should have ever happened Tyree's like one of the nicest dudes I know like something something of this something just as bad as this sh- shouldn't happen to such a good person. This doesn't it doesn't make sense. It was like I was watching a nightmare. Like it didn't feel like a, a real situation. It still doesn't feel real to me. Like like seeing something like that to someone that I cared so much about and that was just such a kind, genuine person to, to experience something that intense, like yeah. I I can't put it into words. Is there room for one more song? One more sun.
2: If you can't hold on, if you can't hold on, hold on.
5: Yeah, the visuals are beautiful to see. People just, you know, showing respect to Tyree. And I know he's just like super stoked on, you know, people, people caring, people, you know, sharing his name, people sharing his video. Like, you know, Tony Hawk saw his video and post- posted on his Instagram. Like Tyree is screaming right now like with the joy. Um, the Regency Skate Park where they did the candle lighting. The candles are still there. We've been adding more every day. Like, It's a beautiful place and it really feels like Tyree's still there. Like him skating there so much, you can just sit there visualize stuff he's done back in the day his his spirit just is, is just is just sitting there i want to shine on in the hearts of man i want a meaning from the back of my broken hand another headaches another heartbreaks i'm so
0: much older than i That's Jerome Neal and Ryan Wilson. The two were close friends with Tyree Nichols and spoke with us at Tyree's Celebration of Life Ceremony in Sacramento over the weekend. The city of Sacramento is moving forward with renaming Regency Community Park in Natomas the Tyree Nichols Skate Park. That's Insight for today. Learn more about our guests at capradio.org Insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to join the conversation, email us at insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producers Nick Dobas and Victor Corral Martinez with managing editor Aram Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Megan Minata. Insight's technical directors Mark Jones, our engineers are Antonio Muniz and Chris Feltz. And our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. I'm Mike Haggerty, and for Vicki Gonzalez, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.